welcome to the conversation. This is Christy, and you're listening to Conversations to Connect. This is episode 46, where we will be getting real about trauma, first responders, and PTSD with my friend Travis House. He's an international touring speaker, author, and motivational wellness educator who spent 14 years in the military and emergency services as a U.S. Marine, police officer, and firefighter. Travis is also author of Create Your Own Light, and I'm interviewing him today because we have the pleasure of bringing him here to Pittsburgh for his Finding Post-Traumatic Purpose Empowerment course that he will be presenting here to our local first responders, veterans, and their family members. Travis, welcome. That was that was a hot introduction. I appreciate that. <laughs> Absolutely. I like to give credit where credit is due. So yeah, you've done a lot in your short life so far. And I have. Um, I'm only 19 years old. I know, right? Yeah. Your beard is incredible for a 19-year-old. Um, yes, and create your own late. I brought my copy and I have my little like notes in there because your journey has been incredible. The part, I mean, your life is so much more than what you put in the book, but it's really been a challenging road for you. And I think that you can speak to a lot of people who really need help that don't re- realize that they need help, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, first off, I want to address the the compliment to my beard. Uh, any any man with a beard always appreciates a good compliment. But if you said it looks great for a 19 year old, if I do my profile, you see all that gray in there. I look like the most stressed out 19 year old that you've ever met. So is this, is this is this going on YouTube? Um, no. So just audio? Yes, but actually oh, we'll, we'll have um, a couple of little clips that uh, we pull out of it for uh, little reels that everybody will get to appreciate the beard. No, no. Well, I wasn't worried about that. I'm, you know, I'm South Carolina and I've just, I'm out here on my farm and I was working in like 110 degree heat with hundred percent humidity. It looks like I'm sitting in a shower right now. So uh, if people were watching this, they would be like, oh man, this guy feels, he's stressed out during this interview. It looks like I'm under a lot of pressure, but I'm not, I forgot to turn the AC on in my house and I went to the gym and I came back and I'm dying over here. I didn't warn you that this is going to be a full on therapy session. Here you are on the therapy podcast. Mm. You're invested, right? Well, good thing I have experience with that because my experience has told me through therapy at any time I can close up shop and walk out. So <laughs> that's right. Done. Yes. You control. always get the eye pass rule. If I bring anything up and you're like, I don't want to talk about that, but knowing you as I'm pretty open, I was going to say, as long as I've known you, yeah, you are pretty open and you're very, you are very accessible. That's the word that I'm looking for. Um, not to tell everybody to hurry up and start like barreling down your door, but Anybody that I know who's really connected to your podcast and reached out to you has just said, you know, how grateful they are that you're so supportive of people that are out there doing the work now, because it's what a hell of a job all of, all of it is. And in the world that we're living in now, it's just shit is crazy. So. Yeah. I didn't realize what I was getting into so many years ago when I was starting to talk about mental health, I knew there was a need for it. And I knew that honestly, I knew that I needed to talk about it and I needed to, I needed to get some, some things off my chest. And outside of the uh, private setting with therapy, you know, and I wanted to get out there and start talking about it in front of my peers and my, my fellow firefighters and police officers, people that looked like me, you know, and people that went through the things that I went through. Cause I, I had a feeling, I was like, I felt like I was the only one, but then I was like, there's no way with millions and millions of these people in this job, I can't be the only one. And then when I started talking about it, man, it's like the doors were blown off. And then ever since then, it's uh, I wasn't ready for what was to come. 
because there's what I found is I'm actually writing my second book. And I was, I was writing about one of the most impactful speeches I ever gave was at the national fraternal order of police wellness summit in 2020. And there wasn't a dry eye in the room with several hundred people in there. There were clinicians, there were doctors, there were police officers. And, uh, this one, I just kind of like, right. Closed my eyes before, before I went up there and I was like, fuck this. I just, I gotta be unfiltered and uncensored. And when I did that, the impact that, that 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 thing made and so many people were coming up afterwards. And what I'm getting at is this, I wasn't ready for the onslaught of people coming up to me, sharing their experiences. I'm grateful that people could open up. But what I did for many years is that I tried to be there for every single person. And what I realized was like, man, I don't ever get to put this stuff down. And that's when I started experiencing secondhand traumatic uh, issues. It's because I'm opening emails where I literally had one one day, I just opened this thing on my Instagram and it was like, Hey man, we went to a call yesterday where we ran, a lady ran over a baby with a lawnmower and killed it. And I'm boom, you know, and it's hearing this stuff day in and day out. But I feel for these responders because many of them don't have anybody they can go just tell that to. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of clinicians out there. What we're seeing in this business is that. That's why I'm grateful for what you guys are doing. There's just not a lot of condition, uh, clinicians who are conditioned for this. And they're trained in the family wellness aspect of it, but they're not ready for the onslaught of stuff from a dude like me uh, or, or a woman that experiences the job like I have. They're not ready for when we come in there and, and, and lay that down. And I know guys that have given their, their clinicians PTSD. Yeah, vicarious trauma is a, a real thing. And the more that we learn about the brain and the neuroplasticity and how we can change it is so encouraging because there's a lot of good treatments out there that don't even require the first responder to regurgitate the stories. Um, So that's saving it. But right now it's very real. And like you said, if you're not prepared for it or trained in that, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. And I'm glad that you brought that point up because it's kind of like the double-edged sword. <laughs> There's a school, what I'm, I'm seeing, and let me know if this is something you've noticed too. There are p- peer supports through law enforcement, I'm thinking of um, right off the top of my head, who would say, you know, you can't counsel a person unless you are or in the field yourself because you don't know what it's like. And then I have guys that come in that are like, are you kidding me? The last person I would go to for counseling is a co- another cop. And I was like, but you you need both from what I've seen, because I don't know what it's like um, to go through this. But in our training, we learn to sit with whatever it is that comes up. So in your book, actually, I was like, oh, he he is listening in therapy. But a lot of what you say, the one thing in life is the following. We are not exempt from loss, pain or personal personal turmoil. These three things can absolutely destroy and define us. And they most certainly will if we choose to lay down and let them. So you look out there at the world and everybody is carrying a lot of shit right now. Um, And Mm -hmm. it's a lot to process. I don't know anybody who couldn't benefit from therapy, but there is a a big resistance in opening up a can of worms, would you say? Well, Chrissy, when you when you sit here and you look at me with my hair, you see how sweaty my hair is right now? I had to take my hat off. I'm pouring. My hair looks like I have a toupee on. This is great. <laughs> we are going to put this on the internet now. Go ahead. I don't care. I got nothing to lose. I got no shame in my game. Yeah, um, some of those stories in your book will prove that. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, so when you talk to a dude like me years ago, I was the same one. I was the guy that would tell, and I believe you were at one of the uh, conferences that I was speaking at in um, Florida, in Orlando. And maybe I talked about this. I don't remember. But I was one of the guys that refused to get help because I didn't think a therapist could help a guy like me because they hadn't seen and been through the things that I had. Mm-hmm. And I was the guy that I would tell my my brothers that, if you go see them, that makes you weak. And, and I, looking back on that, I wish that that's the one thing in life I wish I could change because I actually put a lot of my, my brothers at the time, I put them in harm's way because I talked them out of getting help for themselves because that was the culture that I was from. And that culture still exists. It, it's for some reason we think that it makes you weak. And then my, my whole thought process was they can't relate to us. Well, what I've learned over the years of this, it's better to talk to somebody who cannot relate because they don't see things the way that you do. I can sit down with someone like me and all we're going to do is find the negative in everything. But when I started sitting down with a therapist and really like getting into the gut of this thing, I should have done this a long time ago. And I wish I would have. I'm a big supporter of therapy and I'm not saying that, you know, you need to go there and bake cookies and pies and lay on the couch and cry all the time, but just going able, just being able to go in there and sit down with someone and just unload some stuff off of your, your plate. It's very, very helpful and therapeutic. Hence the word therapy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I do a little experiment when people sit on my couch for the first time and I ask, are you your own best friend or your own worst enemy? And people are like, I would never talk to somebody else the way that I talk to myself. Like we beat ourselves up. And I like in the book that you talked about narratives that you created about people and situations that once you tried to check on it, your reality wasn't the actual reality. So I think that we can all the time get lost in our own mental anguish. And like you said in the book, like carrying it with you or letting somebody help you take it off. I heard my daughter yesterday, I was sitting in the office and I was working and my two, my two daughters had a friend over and my youngest daughter, Poppy, she's six. And she goes, I'm, I'm just stupid. And I don't know what they were talking about. And I sat there and I heard her say that. And then I heard her say it again. And then I heard her say it again. And so I got up and I walked in there to see what they were talking about. And I don't know if she was looking for attention or whatnot, but I went in there and stopped it. And I looked at her and I said, listen, I said, if you keep saying things like that about yourself, you're going to believe it. And I go, inevitably, that is what's going to happen. And I said, so what we're going to do is we're going to stand up. And I took her in there and looked in the mirror because I've had to do this for myself as a grown man. And this isn't easy to admit because it sounds crazy. And I went in there and I put her in the mirror and I made her say 10 positive things about herself. And you could tell she was like, it was, she was forcing it. And then I made her do it again. And I said, I always want you to remember those positive things because you're not those negative things, but the negative, no matter what you start thinking and going down that road, it will consume you and you, you will eventually start hating the person that you see in that mirror. And that's who I was for so long. But when I got to a point where I actually could go look in the mirror and say, you know what, Travis, you're, you're actually a very smart guy. You're a fun guy. You've been through a lot. You're making the most of your situation. You're not as damaged as you make yourself out to be. Um, you do have friends. You do have people that love you. I had started saying all these things and realizing that that's tough to do. 
It most certainly is because we are conditioned as a society to look at what's wrong with this picture. And in your line of work, that's your job and do like what's happening here and how do I need to intervene? So, I mean, personally and professionally, it's good to be able to shut it off. I was, for, for the longest time, I thought I was a bad man. Like I really thought I was a bad human being. And it, it took me a long time to get to a point where I am proud of myself. And when I look at see myself in the mirror, I don't see that, that bad man that I once used to see. And I created that narrative in my mind because of my experiences in life. Would you, is it fair to say that you personalized all of those experiences? I think it'd be fair to say. I just look at you and I, when we hopped on the call, there's just so much need and pain out there. And we're seeing it with, I work with also a lot of spouses of first responders and just Mm -hmm. the fear that they have over their partner is denying that they might have PTSD, but they're noticing how much they're drinking or they have a drug addiction. Our homelessness population with the veterans is just through the roof as well. And that's why I love that you're out there talking about it because I feel like everybody should be screaming from the rooftops like this is a crisis that we're in. And as I get further into it, there's still a lot of resistance for mental health treatment. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because you say guys like me, can you describe to the audience? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that really can relate to you. Yeah. So guys like me, so it's, it's guys that think that they can, and girls too, the, the alphas in, in, in the business, right? It's those that think that they can carry the weight of the world on their shoulders because they've never been taught that it's okay to be vulnerable. And we've always actually been taught the quite the opposite. So I grew up very tough. I talk about that in a book, create your own light. I talk about what hardened my mindset. I talk about childhood trauma and being exposed to loss at an extremely young age and how those things over the course of my young life desensitized me. So by the time I got to a point when I get out of the Marines and I go into law enforcement and I go on to the uh, police department, I'm a very desensitized human being that thinks I've seen it all. I've done it all. I can continue seeing it all and doing it all. So I carry the weight of the world on my shoulders and never exposing any kind of weakness, never exposing any kind of vulnerability, never showing anybody any emotion because emotions for a guy like me coming from the Marine Corps, I'm going to promise you this right now, emotions are not tolerated. We're taught to have bearing. When something good happens, you're not supposed to get excited and celebrate. You you know, it's a whole, hey, I've been there, done that kind of mindset. When something bad happens, you're not allowed to collapse to your knees and grab your head and play poor, poor, pitiful me. You're supposed to have a blank stare on your face. And if you think that serving, I don't care if you do 30 years or four years, I was in Marine Corps infantry and it's a different breed of human beings. And so when I get out and I finally realize all these things later in life, like, damn, I need help. I had a battle, a uh, personal conflict with myself. I, I was like, I think I need help. But if I go get that, I don't deserve that because I'm weak. Right. You hit on something where, and I'm sorry, I'm covering a lot of ground here. So if I get off track, just, just reel me back in, but I'm passionate about what I'm about to say. There are a lot of agencies out there. There are a lot of responders out there who still think this same way. And I get it. I understand. I'm not condemning them for their, their way of thinking. I think in a, in a, in some sense of the word, it's a um, defense mechanism. Well, I gotta, I gotta, in my mind, be as hard as, as nails. And if I'm not, then I can't do this job. Right. And they have a career to protect and they have a family to provide for. And so they don't want to start going down that road of doubting their abilities to do that job. 
And a lot of them say it's just a job, like I'm just doing my job. They don't give themselves the credit for what a difficult job it is and how trauma yeah. happens to you. You don't, you can't run away from it is what I'm saying. What we don't take into consideration is we don't take into consideration the job, the stress on the family, the lack of sleep, the, the extra hours that we work just to get by mm-hmm. the things that we do without the events that we miss, the wedge that's put in between our families because of the job, right? Yeah. It's a great job. It's a prideful job. And at the end of the day, there's other things that are at play here. So all those things, it creates this one big stress ball going forward. Right. And I tell people, it's not even the suicides. It's suicides is a big part of it. But if you look at the divorce rate in our business, it's 80%. And that's not because of the work schedule. It's because of the lack of communication. And it's because of what this job turns us into. You know, my thing is I've worked with the hardest individuals in life. I've seen the toughest Marines. I've worked alongside of them. I've seen the toughest cops. I've worked alongside of them. I've seen the toughest firemen. I've worked alongside of them. So nobody impresses me. And when I go out there and and I'm speaking, you'll you'll always get these, these guys or these girls with this stone look on their face. And I can see what they're doing. They're trying to intimidate you. This has happened. And they're trying to look at you from the, the audience like this doesn't bother me. This doesn't pertain to me. You can see that this is bullshit all over your face. But you know what I know deep down inside? That's the person that's crying, sucking their thumb in a bathroom next to a bottle of whiskey and got a, and got a pistol in their hand because that's who I was. Mm-hmm. If you would have told me 15 years ago, any of this, I would have looked at you and called you a pussy. I would have been like, then you just can't, you can't handle the job. But what I realized is I was young and naive. I'm an older, wiser man now and I get it. And I wish I could turn back the hands of time and go back and correct that about myself. Cause I tell these hard individuals, look, we can still do tough guy and tough girl shit and still be very hard individuals, but there's nothing wrong with being compassionate towards one another and being a little bit aware of ourselves so we can have longevity and not just our career, but guess what else? Our family. So getting back to your point, these administrations, these departments that think that mental health is not necessary. They're a ticking time bomb. And you know what I've gotten? I've, I've gotten the calls from people when it's too late. Hey, can you come in here? We had somebody commit suicide with this and that. And now it's more of a check in the box. Like, well, we wish we would have known. And it's like, why aren't you being proactive about this? I, t- I do a portion. And I think you saw this when I was talking about um, the Denver drill in the fire service. I won't go into it, but the Denver drill changed the way the fire service trained the entire fire service across the world because we lost one firefighter in Denver, Colorado. In a, in a fire. And so now the whole fire department worldwide has to redo their training. So we don't uh, repeat that incident. Well, we lose more people off duty from suicide than we do in the line of duty. And we don't train on it. We don't even talk on it. There's no emphasis placed on that. And that's because the emphasis is placed on the individual responder while they're at work. And all these departments, they give us the tools necessary to succeed on the emergency scene but they don't give us any fucking tools for being off duty and taking care of ourselves at our most vulnerable time. You know why? Because you can't see it. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's not taken seriously. If you could, if you could watch these emergency responders and if you could see inside of their heads and if, you, and if a doctor said, okay, anybody whose brain is red, they're on the verge of collapsing and, and breaking down and causing your agency potential lawsuits because they're not in the right headspace. And if they saw all these cops walking by and, and now they had full transparency, they could see into their brains, they'd see 90% of them were like that. 
and they're just barely holding it together. I don't know if that was the best metaphor, but shit, it was almost, I was, <laughs> no, I, I, it's, I was working on the fly. <laughs> it's absolutely true because when I met you, we were just coming off of a pilot for doing a mindful connections program. And like I had brought to you before, when it comes to mental health, mindfulness, meditation, like this is the shit that works for everybody. And anybody who took that pilot was like, oh my God, one of the, we had a chief of police, two lieutenants. I was surprised and in a good way that people were open to leadership being the ones to step forward. And to hear those guys say, hey, I'm managing my anger differently when I'm driving to a call, like I'm doing my breathing exercises so that I'm a little bit more mm. alert when I'm there. But it all sounds like hippy dippy shit for most of the people, because when we go and um, have new course signups and it's all fully funded by grants, nobody really is jumping to sign up for it. Because I think, like you said, it's a people are worse off than me. It's not that bad kind of. I hear that a lot when I send people to your podcast and to listen to some of your talks and they're like, oh my gosh, he's been through so much. Like there's this comparison factor that goes on like I'm not that bad so I don't need help well the problem is maybe you're not that bad but if you don't do something about it now later on you might be that bad and what you're doing is getting behind the eight belt ball and I tell people like all the time I say look you can't compare your story to my story yeah I've been through a what they call a metric fuck ton mm -hmm. of trauma and it's not to put it on a pedestal but just because I've been through that and you haven't doesn't mean that your whatever you're going through is any less significant. Mm -hmm. You know, we all handle things differently. And, you know, I talk about that in my course, post-traumatic purpose, that mindset of, of first responders who we almost carry um, the bad calls. We carry that as like a badge of honor. And I realized looking back how that was wrong. And what we need to do is use those bad calls to learn from and get the younger kids underneath us spun up to speed versus treating them like they don't deserve to be there because they didn't go on that call where they had to pull a baby out from under uh, from a pool and do CPR on it and pull a kid out from underneath a bicycle and put put his arms back on top of his his torso while you're ready for the corner and shit like that you know what I mean you don't have to go to calls like that just to be affected by things and that's how we used to treat each other well if you haven't been to that don't don't even talk to me it's this need for control I mean everybody in life wants to feel safe and secure and if they feel like they're not in control of things but guess what I mean you say it in the book too like we're not in control of anything except ourselves Nothing. and you know how we show up in our relationships and one thing that I do hear a lot from first responders is I used to talk to my spouse about these things but I can't put them through that anymore either so then there's another layer of just holding back and not talking about so that drives me crazy when I hear that, because the, the one person in our lives that can truly be beneficial to our wellness is our spouse. Mm -hmm. And when the, we don't talk to them or we, we box them out, right. Or ice them out, whatever you want to say. And we start behaving a different way. They don't know why. So what they do is they start thinking it's their fault. And I know this from personal experience, mm -hmm. they start taking things personally. And so what that does is you now have created a wedge between you and your spouse because you are either too prideful or you go back to that old school culture way of thinking, hey, don't talk to anybody that doesn't relate to you, right? Because that's what this comes back to. Same reason we don't talk to therapists, right? Well, what we do is we keep it all in. And how does that work out for us? It doesn't. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we end up becoming this asshole at home. 
we end up reacting to certain situations and they have no clue why my children were witnessing me react to situations. I was screaming at them in the car for just for them being kids, having a good time. Well, that's because my mind was on a shitty call and their screams and their, the way that they were talking and their pitches reminded me of that call, same car ride. My wife is shifting, um, shifting lanes in traffic that put me in the back of this ambulance where I worked on a call where I actually killed a guy and we're doing CPR on the guy in the back of this ambulance. So now I'm in two bad places at one time. All right. How do you think I get out of that? Do you think I get out of that just by using some breathing techniques or do I get out of that by being extremely aggressive and yelling at everybody to knock it the fuck off? Mm -hmm. And that's how I handle it. And that is how people who don't communicate with one another, that's how it's handled. And when you speak to your family that way, over and over and over again, guess what they're going to do? They're going to start not liking the guy or girl that you are anymore. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to want to do things with you. And they're going to naturally put distance between you because they're always walking on eggshells around you. I have a group right now. Uh, Cause as you're talking about this, it's just all these people's stories are coming up. Spouses, all of them happen to be wives in this group, supporting each other to not have to manage the triggers of their partners and their their treatment and their lives and really working hard to kind of get them into a therapeutic space and then get their own kind of therapy because they're just trying to make everything right for some reason it seems to be that the two personalities come together of i need to take care of somebody and somebody that really needs their own mental health treatment if that makes sense so i'm curious (laughs) what got you through the therapy door for the first time well i had a gun in my mouth pulling i pulled the trigger and it was loaded and the weapon was off safe. That's a story for another time. And then I realized when I didn't kill myself that I really needed some help. And so I started getting therapy. But again, I talk about guys like me and I started getting it, but I started getting it secretly. And I still went to work and it was still around big, tough dudes. And I kept this in. I was in the closet with therapy. Mm-hmm. And I used, the, I used the metaphors like being gay in the NFL in the locker room and you can't tell anybody because if you do, that makes you less of a man. And so you have to put on this big manly front. So I was in the closet with my therapy mm-hmm. and I didn't tell anybody. And I still talked and I still spoke negatively about therapy and therapists and all that just to keep that facade up. It, it wasn't until years later when I really realized like, Hey man, your, your way of thinking is just way off and you were doing more harm than good. But that's the way I was brought up. You know, I tell spouses because I talk to spouses all the time and I uh, shit, I was just on the phone with one for an hour yesterday and it, from your area, as a matter of fact, that's crazy. I was going to say, was, did I send them your way? Well, I don't know if you sent this person, but, but I got a message. <laughs> yeah, I got a message and then I was like, where are you again? And then they told me and I was like, oh, I said, you know, Christy, are you coming? Yeah. She's like, yeah, yeah I sure do. So anyway. We work through a little bit of, you know, some things. And um, what I'm getting at is this, it's, it's never your responsibility to manage your spouse's emotions, their triggers and all this. It is your responsibility as a spouse to hopefully have a conversation with them, know what their triggers are. Mm-hmm. So you can be mindful of that. My wife used to walk on eggshells around me. So did my kids. And then I realized the way that I was speaking to them, that I would never let another man talk to my family that way ever. So why was it acceptable for me? Right? Well, we hurt the ones that are closest to us. So what I did is I had to have a, another hard look in the mirror, you know, through that book, how, how I talk about how hard that is to own your shit. 
And I had to have a, a look, a hard look in the mirror. And I was like, look, I can't say the things that I want to say when I want to say them anymore. I just can't because they're too destructive and it's not right. And what I was doing is I was teaching my kids that it was acceptable to talk to them that way for a man to talk to a girl that way. And, and for a man to talk to their mother that way. And I knew that wasn't right. I wasn't raised that way. I was raised a girl, Southern boy. And you know, we're chivalrous. We hold the doors open and stuff. And yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. But for some reason, like all that went out the window with me and I was just reacting to every little thing, which is I'm talking probably three, 400 different triggers that I had to manage. Like it was all the time. So it was very overwhelming for me, but I did realize I said, look, I can't make my problems, their problems anymore mm -hmm. because no matter what my wife did, it never, it never helped. Mm -hmm. It just seemed to get in the way. So I told them, I sat them down and I said, look, here's what I'm going through. Here's some of the major things that you can help me with. And my girls know children screaming is a big one. So they try not to scream when they're around me. Now, I don't want to suck all the fun out of their childhood, but they're, they're very aware of it. And so what they'll do is I'll hear, they'll start getting fired up and I'll hear when I'm like, Hey, 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 let's, let's keep it calm. Daddy, daddy's working or daddy's in the office or whatever. And then they go about their thing and they have a good time. But without ever telling them that all I do is just react to it all the time. They don't know why. And so that's how just speaking to your family. Now I never gave them details of anything. I don't need to. They just know something hurts me. And so they don't want to do that. And it's the same as my daughters. If I knew something that I did hurt them, I would fucking stop it. And I did. And, and that's what I did. I, I had to sit down and, and think about that. I said, what I'm doing is actually hurting them. And that made me disgusted with myself. And I had to change that. One of the officers that took our program, he's a four, Iraq veteran, I think. And now he's on the police force. And he when coming in, he said, you know, I'm losing hope. Uh, I'm losing hope in society. I'm losing hope in God. Like, I don't know. I'm just angry all the time. And he was one that listened to one of your very first podcasts. And he was like, oh my gosh, like I felt like that was me talking. Never yeah. even in a million years thought that he could have PTSD. I think that it's that, like you said, there's so much resistance to it that there's no understanding of what does it mean and that there is hope and help for it. it this isn't like a death sentence. If you carry everything on, it really is, but it's just physically, mentally, and and just getting people to understand when you're triggered, like the part of your brain that gets activated shuts down your whole ability to react and respond in an appropriate manner. So if you know that, like mm. you said, if you're just talking about what are the triggers, like, oh, this is happening. I need to put these things into place. But without the knowledge behind that, people are just walking around empty. And it, it's, it's sad and it's scary. And it's why I push as much as I push against the resistance to getting more counselors available who are well-versed in trauma for first responders. So Travis is actually going to speak to a group of clinicians while he's here in Pittsburgh as well. But can you let the first responders kind of know what to expect if they come to the training? Yeah, but I'm going to hit on something you just mentioned. So <laughs> when I was diagnosed with PTSD, all right, just like you said about this guy, he didn't know that he was even close to having it. When I was actually told that I had it and I had extremely elevated levels of it, right? I honestly thought that it was a death sentence because you, you said that, and I talk about that in my course. I, I, I preach this, that life is not over after the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Your life can actually get substantially better 
by being told that you have this. And, and what I mean by that is it allows you to grow. You get two choices. Once you're told, hey, you have post-traumatic stress. Now it's like, what the fuck are you going to do about it? You're going to let it consume you. You're going to let it eat your family up, your job up, or are you going to grow as a human being and become stronger because of it? Are you going to become more resilient because of it? With me, I wouldn't trade it because I would give back all the bad trauma that I went through because that would mean I get a bunch of people that I cared about back, right? But I wouldn't trade what it did to me because as badly as it hurt me, it allowed me to become a phoenix and it allowed me to, to grow beyond levels that are unimaginable as a, as a man. And I'm still learning about myself and it's kind of a beautiful thing. And as, as I get older, I'm more interested in it and in, in, in learning about this growth and this journey that I'm on. When I was younger, I didn't give a fuck. All I want to do is lift weights and, and go to the beach and, and see girls. That's it. And as damaged as I was, I didn't care. I was just drinking, lifting weights and being a good Christian boy. All right. Holding doors open for lady friends. <laughs> Guys like me. That's going to so, be a hashtag. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to, to say that, but when I, when I was diagnosed, I thought I didn't deserve to be on the job anymore. I thought like, man, this makes me weak now because I was ignorant to it. And it didn't, it actually gave me a lot of strength. I'm not religious. I'm not spiritual. So that's not where I'm going with this. And I tell people that off the bat, like I'm neither one of those things. I never have been. And I'm not asking anybody to come to me, preach the word of God to me because they do it all the time. They're like, you say you're not religious, but you, you know, this is God. Like you think whatever you want. I'm just telling you what this thing did for me. It helped me grow as a human being. So it doesn't have to be a sentence. to answer your question. We took the long road there. What can first responders expect? I would hope the first responders would bring their spouses because this may not tell you anything you don't already know about yourself, but it's going to tell your spouse a lot about you. And they're going to see a lot of you in my story. And they're going to, it's going to help them better understand. And what I'm hoping that that does is opens a line of communication between the two of you. I truly do. You don't even have to have a spouse. You can have family members. I've had grandmothers and grandfathers. I've had parents of firefighters in the rooms who have affected loved ones and it helped them understand. I've had mothers sobbing after these events. Like you have told me more in this four hours than all the books I've ever read. That's because you know why when people write those books, they write books to sell books and to use big words. And I don't use big words. I'm a first responder. I talk a lot of shit. I say a lot of uncomfortable things. And I speak our language. What I'm hoping is guys and girls like me who are sitting out there who are going through something, they can, they can understand like, Hey, look, if I can do it, you can do it too. I never had this when I was on the job. And if had some, if someone like me would have stood up there in front of me when I was young and talked about this stuff, maybe I would have blown it off, but just maybe I would have said, you know what, damn, maybe I do need to go get some help and maybe it is okay to do this. And so that's what they can expect. That's a tall order and I'm looking forward to it just so that the audience knows Travis is going to come talk, but then also supplementally, we're going to be offering day retreats for first responders and spouses and significant others to come up into the garden, do some therapeutic connecting, because just what you said, our day in and day out routine, we forget to reconnect with our spouses and loved ones in ways that are healthy. Yeah. Do you know what I just did this morning? What? I went and I did muscle memory. I did a thing I've done for 22 years. I got up, had my breakfast. I went to the gym at the same time. 
worked out for an hour and a half, two hours. And I came back because we're always focusing on the outer side of us, right? You know what I haven't done today? I haven't taken five minutes to work on my brain. So that's to complement what you're saying. We need to take five or 10 minutes a day because it's more important to take care of that than it is our bodies. But it goes back to that. If you can't see it, it doesn't need work. You're absolutely right. We have, so when people take our course, they have to meditate every single day. It's just part of the, try this and see if it works. And a lot of the guys will say like their transition from work to home is a good place. They're in their car. They're just doing a couple of minutes of, I call them brain repetitions, just like you're building your bicep. You're literally building that, that part of your brain that can help you calm your emotions. Nobody's taught as a young kid. Well, hopefully maybe now we're starting to change that, but how to deal with your emotions and the emotions of people around you that sends people running. So I think that's a part of therapy. That's scary for people. I think it, we always want to be better, right? Nobody, nobody wants to be worse. Right. So I'm like right now I'm in severe back pain because I have back pain. This isn't me complaining, but I want to be better. Yeah. So I stretch, I do all these things. You know what I don't do when my back is not hurting me? I don't stretch. I don't do all the things I should be doing all the preventative care. Okay. I only do it. And I'm, I've been going through this for 20 years because I'm hardheaded. Well, it's not hurting me. So I'm good when I should be doing preventative maintenance on it. Yeah. And I encourage people, you spoke with Don. I have to give him a shout out because he's really behind all of this. He's such a pusher of mental health and wellness. What he started doing after listening to your podcast and talking with you, he said, I'm starting an experiment. Every guy, like you said, the toughest guys I know, I say, how's your mental health? And he's like, and I've asked probably about 25 or 30 people and nobody's told me to go fuck myself. So that's good because people, he's like, they're a little shocked. Well, nobody's really asked me that before. And, you know, some here in Pittsburgh, there was uh, the tree of life synagogue shooting. And he said, some, some of the guys that were in that building, nobody's ever asked them how their mental health is doing. And it's just like, it's so important to get this messaging out there. And so I think just checking on each other about our mental health is a good place to start. I'm going to hit something here that's very controversial with what I'm about to say is nobody asks because they don't want to know the truth, right? And I say this with respect to law enforcement. You know, I'm a huge supporter of law enforcement, but I get a lot of police officers from across the country telling me about their departments and how they don't do anything for their mental health. And I think that's because of this. If you know an officer is going through something and they're not right in the head and then they go out and they get in a questionable shooting scenario, well, now you know that they weren't right, but why were they out there working, right? So what liability does the actual police department have now? What they don't know can't hurt them, correct? So if that same officer goes out, gets in a questionable shooting, the, the police department doesn't know how their, that officer's mental health was holding up. Now it goes all back to the officer. How many officers have been fired? How many officers have been imprisoned because of actions that they took on somebody that were not justified? And if you were to take a deep, dark look into what that officer was going through, had they have helped themselves along the way or gotten some help, they may not have reacted that way because we get hot-headed. What we do is we take this, this ball that we create of nothing but turmoil and we keep stuffing it down, stuffing it, stuffing it, and, and we explode. And that's what happened to me on the fire department. That's why I lost my career. I exploded because I wasn't handling everything the way I needed to handle. So I think a lot of departments, I think, honestly, they don't want to know the truth because I think they would be 
overwhelmed with the amount of officers that need help. And then they would be even more short staffed. That's exactly what I was going to say. When you're in a shortage now and people are working overtime and it's not good for mental health. So if you're talking about the ways to prevent those things, taking more time, having space, like that's, that's a real fears. When we were collecting officers for our, our pilot there, um, we had some research and one of the girls said, we don't want people telling, we don't want civilian people telling us how we need to be or that we're the ones that need to change and we're not in dangerous situations. And it's like, no, it's not about that. It's providing the tools so that you can actually have a better life, not just on the job, but like you were saying with what happens on the job leaks into your personal life one way or the other. Yeah. And those people on the job that think that that doesn't happen and think, oh, I have the ability to not drag it home. Bullshit. You might have the ability to leave some of it at the door, but I promise you, just like air escapes from a home and air gets in through a home, so does some of that bullshit that you carry. your, Your house isn't sealed up enough. It's going to come in with you because you can't, whatever's going on in your brain, you can't just leave that at the door sometimes. You drag it in whether you know it or not. And it's, it, you know, 10 years into your career, you're not the same person anymore. You're very like, you're short with people. Uh, you know, I talk about hypervigilance a lot. I mean, because it's one of my favorite things to talk about because I'm a nut when it comes to hypervigilance. And it affects my family mm-hmm. because of the way that I am. They're like, daddy, who is out to get you? And I'm like, nobody. But if they are, I'm going to fucking see them before they see me. And they're look at me like I'm crazy. And when you walking into your... a room and knowing exactly what could go down and how you're going to handle each situation. Girl, this new book I'm writing, I write this whole chapter on hypervigilance and like how, like, like, so we talked about me being a Southern gentleman. I'm chivalrous, right? I've always held the door open for women. I'll, I would hold the door open for you right now. If you were down here and we were going to lunch, right? With my family, it's different. I don't hold the door for my wife and I don't hold the door for my kids. Do you know why? Because when I open that door, I want to see that whatever threats on the other side and I'm putting them behind me and I walk through first. I don't, I'm not going to put them into a dangerous situation. You don't know what you're walking into in that restaurant. Same as when you're exiting on that parking to the parking lot. I'm not going to expose them to that every single time. My wife will tell you right now, he does not hold doors for us. And I walk through first always. And it makes me look unchivalrous, but I actually am. I'm actually putting my (laughs) life in front of my families and to most men, to banker Bob, that looks fucking crazy or sounds crazy. I've heard guys say, I can't go hiking with my kids because I don't know how long it would take a, a life flight helicopter to get there. I'm like on edge, on the edge of my seat and I can't enjoy time with my family because I'm too much in that hyper vigilant state. I but take my boat out had with my the family. language to know that's what was happening, mm-hmm. that that would benefit them. Go ahead. Sorry. I don't do a lot of things with my kids. If that's too far off the beaten path for that same reason. Like I take the boat out with my family. I grew up in the river with my dad, right? My dad, we would go out late at night. My dad used to um, make extra money on the side from his normal job, um, selling shrimp and fish. And we would go out on school nights. And this is part of the reason I sucked in school and not to mention South Carolina's last in the education system, but I go to school I was out working with my father till three or four in the morning. Then I'm at school at seven o'clock in the morning. So I didn't have a lot of time to sleep, but I remember growing up on the water, just my dad and I out there in a pitch black dark doing that stuff. I would not do that in a million years with my kids because I have different experiences in life than my father. We go out on the boat. 
my wife is with us every time. I will not take my kids, just me and my kids. And you know why? I think if I have a heart attack out here, they're fucked. These two young girls are going to be in, the, in this boat by themselves, not knowing what to do. And I'm not worried about me. I'm worried about them. Yeah. And yeah, so it, it, it plays into your, to your experience. So of the even family. the people who think that this, that there's nothing wrong with them or this pushing down, I have one question for you about brotherhood. <laughs> I hear from some people these days that they feel, you know, a lot of bullying happening at work. They feel on the outside of things. So they feel like they don't even have somebody that they trust in their close circles. Do you think that brotherhood is different across different from firefighters, Marines to law enforcement? Cause you've been a part of all of it. Is it changing over the years? It is not what it used to be. I'm seeing now what I see now. I see more of a corporate mindset than I see of a, a brotherhood mindset. I don't have the diagnosis for that. I don't know why, mm-hmm. but I do know something's changed. Like when I was on the job, we had each other's backs. We didn't tattletale on one another. Whatever happened in the firehouse stayed in the firehouse kind of thing. Even if you didn't like a guy, it stayed there. Now it's like, and I'm hearing this from so many people that, that are in the business now. They're like, dude, people will, will, will stab you in the back so fast. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why. Um, I think the brotherhood now is bullshit. A lot of it. I think there's a lot of good intentions out there, but we're not doing a good, we're not doing the best job. I think it looks good on t-shirts, on bumper stickers and stuff like that. And hashtag, and people like to say it, to feel like a part of it. But are we really doing that? Because I talk about that in my course too. I talk about taking care of one another. We're like, we're great at giving our compassion to complete strangers, mm-hmm. but we suck at giving that same compassion to one another in the brotherhood. And that's not brotherhood. When you see a dude going through some stuff, who's clearly on edge and everything around him is crumbling and you don't go over there and help lift him up and try to figure out how you can be of assistance. That's not brotherhood. No. And I think that this is a good place to start. Let's help look out for one another. Let's take care of each other. And maybe we can get some of that because when people are feeling isolated and not a part of something, they have no meaning and purpose. And so when you're doing a job like that, a lot of people's identity turns into their job and that's not who you are. You are Travis on the farm with your wiener. (laughs) You you are teaching my course, man. I love it. And I was talking about your new puppy, by the way. Oh, I know that didn't, that didn't go unnoticed. Too many people let this job define. And at the end of the, the, this career, they're left feeling like they don't have purpose. And that's why I'm so big on purpose. And your purpose is not what brings your paycheck. Your purpose is what your heart needs in life to, to keep beating. Too many people, I think, associate being a cop or being a firefighter with that's their purpose. And that's not. That's a lifestyle. It's a, it's a profession and it's a fucking damn good one if you let it be. Mm-hmm. But it can't be your only purpose in life. There has, there's more to life than that. And it, it took me a long time to realize that. I know what mine is, you know, and everybody's is different, but if you don't have one, when you leave those jobs, and I talk about this too, the suicide rate amongst retirees is through the roof. And I'm not going to get into the numbers right now, but it is insane at the amount of retirees that kill themselves. And it's because they spend a lifetime planning for retirement. And then when they get there, they find out it's not what it's all cracked up to be because guess what they didn't spend their life doing, taking care of their mental health 
and they probably aren't married anymore. If they are married, it's destroyed. They probably don't have a great relationship with their children. You know what I mean? Because of how we are. And they probably still have a lot of issues and baggage from the job that they never dealt with. And they don't want to deal with it anymore. And so they start smoking themselves. And I think that that's probably a good place for us to close it off because it's all about finding that meaning and purpose. And everybody has it in them. There's a light in you. Sometimes it's way under a whole bunch of layers of, I like how you describe file cabinets, trauma. Mm -hmm trauma after trauma after trauma. And it's still in there. It just because you don't pay attention to the skeletons, they're in the closet. So really finding meaning and purpose might be starting to peel back those layers in, I don't know, a safe and therapeutic environment or Travis's training is a good place to start, but also bringing a family member with you so that they can hear all the stories and how to be supportive without fixing I don't want to sound too like lay on your couchish, but there's a, there's a, there's a cool thing with really figuring out who you are. And I think a lot of people think that they know who they are, but they really have no clue because they haven't really done the research and dug down deep and answered the tough questions and asked the tough questions, asked the questions that they don't really want to know the answer to, because it's, it's hard knowing the truth sometimes about yourself. But when you start doing that, man, the growth is tremendous. So exciting. I'm so excited that you're excited about that. Because oh, I love it. You know, we're constantly changing every day. Like our partners are changing every day. Kids are changing every day. It's like letting people grow into who they're meant to be, not having this fixed sense of self. And I can't believe that therapy is seen as weak because it's the most courageous thing you can do to sit and to say things out loud to somebody and process these things is yeah. not for the faint of heart. That's for sure. You know, I love also love when people are like, I don't care what people think. And it's like, really? I bet you do because you've never opened up in front of a bunch of people before. That's when you know a motherfucker doesn't care what people think. When they can sit down and just throw all their stuff on the table and be like, look, this is who I am. This is what I experienced, good, bad, or indifferent. This is where I'm going with it. This is where I've been. These are some of the, the horrible things I've done. Now what? It's easy. I think a lot of a lot of folks make things that makes them look, I guess, gives them more bravado or makes them look more tough. And that's just another way of appearing, appearing tough and tapping your armor. Like, yeah, I don't care what people think. No, you actually really do because you're still holding a bunch of shit in. You ever look at a, like a tomato plant in a mm -hmm. garden. Mm -hmm. And if you never weed around that tomato plant, what happens? It gets the weeds, yes. Yeah. And then the weeds start taking the nutrients and it starts strangling the, the plant. Well, actually talking about this stuff and getting rid of this shit that you've been holding on to your whole life, it's like weeding that garden and it allows that plant to grow more nutritiously. And that's, boom, that's where we are. That's therapy in a nutshell, for sure. I'm very honored to watch so many people on so many walks of life because we all are human beings. So going back to that, you're not your profession. You're not just a father, just a husband. You are your own unique self. And when you get to know who you are and really befriend yourself, the sky's the limit. And the world is a better place as a result. You're untouchable. Untouchable. That's it is. Sure. When you stop watching Fox News every day, it's it's a beautiful world we live in, actually. <laughs> yeah. All the fear mongering. I won't get on my soapbox today. I'll say that for another day. But like technology, I just got to say that our brains have evolved so slowly over time. And the last 20 years, like there's nobody sitting with mental health professionals like, is this safe for kids? 
is this safe for adults? You know, it's just another way to check out and, you know, be Mm -hmm. uh, mindless about things, but you can also be mindful about, you know, the good technology. But I do have to say, uh, I know a gal who is a dancer, an exotic dancer. And we were talking about first responders and she started cracking up. She's like, oh yes, if you don't think first responders need therapy, come to the champagne room. That's where you see all the emotions coming out. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm talking to Travis. I got to bring that up. That's the dark side therapy office. We Well, we all have our vices, don't we? That's right. That's but right. I mean, I was like, it makes sense. You're, you feel like safe and protected when we first start doing, there's a lot of resistance and paranoia about who wants this information about me? Where's it going to go? Is this protected like, no, you're HIPAA compliant. This is a safe mm-hmm. and confidential space. You should start doing your therapy from the champagne room. <laughs> you know, get, more people would come like willingly, like, Hey, look, I'll go there. And there's just, there's, there's, it's weird because you will get these people that will go to places like that and unload their stuff because it's safe. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get into the whole peer support thing but I train peer support teams all over too. And one of the first things I tell them, like, why do you think people don't trust you? And they don't ever know. I'm like, because y'all work in the same department. Peer support teams should support other agencies, not their own. Yeah. You can't do that. I couldn't come to you and tell you, Hey man, I have a problem with cocaine and hookers. You're eventually going to get promoted to my chief one day. And now when I'm up for captain promotion, you're like, oh, wait, this guy, right. He's addicted to cocaine and hookers. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's no anonymity there. Right. Right. And there's, and that brings us full circle from the beginning of this, of they're both necessary. They go, they go hand in hand for different reasons. And for some reason, I think that people think they need to pick one or the other, but I don't know. We'll just keep on keeping on here, Travis. Stop being hard-headed and, and come out and get some help. You're, so many people are afraid. They're not afraid to run into burning buildings. They're not afraid to run into gunfire, but they're, they're afraid to hear some truthful shit sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that, isn't that crazy? I'll go get shot in the line of duty before I will ever learn a little bit about myself. Think about that. When you feel that you, what you brought up earlier, Travis, worthless, not important. It's just like not even on the radar. So we're here. We're here to say you are worth it. Get some damn help. Get some help. Thank you so much, Christy. I'll be seeing y'all soon, all right? Hey, yeah. So happy to have you. Thank you so Tell much. Tell your, uh, whoever's listening, find me on Instagram, Travis House. Come on oh, over. Yeah, yeah. And listen to the podcast. It's good. Yeah. Create your own light. Create your it. own light. Get your book. Get your ticket. Um, it's free for anybody in Pittsburgh or visiting Pittsburgh. Sign up. Thank you so much, Travis. I appreciate you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Conversations to Connect. If you like what you heard today, please take a few minutes to let us know by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about our wellness activities and therapy solutions for individuals, couples, and families, please visit villagetherapy.org today. We look forward to speaking with you next time on an all-new installment of Conversations to Connect.